You are listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission, to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. Hello everyone, my name is Urja Tapan and I am currently pursuing PhD in Diplomacy and Disarmament at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. My research interests include the Indo-Pacific, South Asian affairs, India-China relations, and IR theory. As a member of the Indo-Pacific Circle, today I will be interviewing former Ambassador Vijay Nambiar on Indian and Chinese negotiating styles. He joined the Indian Foreign Service in 1967. He studied Chinese in Hong Kong and served in China from 1970 to 1972. and then returned to South Block and stayed at the Udyog Bhavan till 1976. He then served as the first secretary in Tito's Yugoslavia. He was posted from 1979 to 1982 in the Indian mission at the UN in New York and served in Delhi during the 1983 Non-Alignment Movement Summit and afterwards. From 1985 to 1987 he was India's ambassador in Algeria. He returned to Delhi as joint secretary East Asia in the Ministry of External Affairs in 1987 and helped prepare for Rajiv Gandhi's historic visit to China in 1988. Subsequently he served as India's ambassador/high commissioner in Afghanistan, Malaysia, China, Pakistan and then as the permanent representative to the UN in New York. from 2002 to 2004 post retirement he served as deputy national security advisor of india from 2004 to 2006 he was then deputed by the government of india to serve in the un secretariat as under secretary general special advisor to secretary general kofi annan 2006 to 2007 and then he served as the chef de cabinet to secretary general ban ki moon from 2007 to 2012 and later as advisor on Myanmar from 2012 to 2016 he's currently an honorary fellow at Institute of Chinese Studies it's an honor to interview him and learn from him on this very special issue of Indian and Chinese negotiating styles so sir first and foremost uh <laughs> given your extensive background as the former deputy national security advisor and of course being the honorary fellow at the institute of chinese studies uh, do you recognize china and its aggressive expansionism in south china sea or taiwan etc or its uh, wolf warrior diplomacy tactics as nowadays the buzzword as the biggest security mm. dilemma in the present domain of indo pacific especially for india especially uh, is the current mix of confrontation and reassurance strategies of india which uh, professor raj uh, gopalan calls as evasive balancing are they proving to be effective in dealing with the chinese threat i think you know we have you know this wolf warrior diplomacy is a new thing for china china's traditional policy has always been in a sense uh, you know to speak from a high moral ground to speak of uh, of being on the side of the you know of, of having experienced the the vagaries of uh, the colonial and the the great powers and and therefore being having you know having learnt lessons not to uh, be hegemonistic etc at one level they have been always talking about it and to an extent as long as the chinese china had basically 
an ideological orientation, the socialist ideological orientation of the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s, that seemed all right. But the major change came, obviously, with uh, the uh, with Deng Xiaoping's uh, uh, kind of uh, the you know the four modernizations, and that has actually changed the entire strain of uh, or uh, the, the the orientation of Chinese diplomacy too. Uh, after joining the United Nations, of course, she became conscious that she was a permanent member of the United of the P five of uh, of the Security Council, and therefore. The attitude, even in even during that time, in the initial st stages, China was in a learning mode and generally decided, did not take the lead in many of these things. It is basically only after the rather, let's say, dramatic uh, economic development in the early part of this century, uh, particularly in the uh, later stages of the of Hu Jintao's uh, uh, presidency, and more particularly during Xi Jinping's uh, office, that China began to show that it had actually reached, it's almost arrived on the international scene, and that's when it started making obvious its uh, its you know uh, uh, in a sense its uh, assertiveness as a great power, and that's where uh, I think the Questions of you know, the uh, 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 aggressive confrontationist. It realized, of course, in many ways, I think it realized that it can't uh, it can't adopt the old uh, strategy which Deng Xiaoping had mentioned of lying low and not taking any initiatives. That was the uh, that was the initial strategy which which Deng Xiaoping had suggested during the period when China was to was to reach out, as it were, for help from all sides in order to be able to grow at a dramatic pace. It is only when, I think, when Xi Jinping came that they managed, they began to grow in a sense, the growth was being perceived on, on, by everybody. And also in, the, in, the, in, in wanting to safeguard their interests, they, they began to, I mean, they, they began to realize that it was being noticed everywhere. And the, for example, in the early in the South China Seas, for example, they've had their problems with Japan, with uh, with the other uh, ASEAN countries too. But they had stressed working on a model code of conduct, and that China will not do anything to disturb the peace, and they would work you know cooperatively. But in the, all through, they were actually slowly, you know, using tried and tested old school, you know, the traditional Chinese strategy of deception, of using the, what they call the 36 stratagems, of not making it very evident, but building, building, this, you know, uh, their power building, uh, making, building assets inside the, in the, in the South China Seas. But very soon these became very evident to the outside world. And it is that time that they started the, what may be called the aggressive wolf war warrior. That I think, it's a very cold-bloodedly. I think it is a. It's a strategy which has been devised very, very carefully, and I think it's a sign that China has arrived and it will not take things lying down. Now, to an extent, uh, <clears throat> they have sought to justify it in terms of protecting their own interests, but I think it is being increasingly seen by the rest of the world as as China's attempt now to push where its interests, direct interests, are involved.
and <clears throat> i think that this will this it's as the uh, china's interests go worldwide particularly in uh, bri you have seen that it's moving also in many areas uh, it is uh, on the one hand china has always talked about high principle moral ground com- uh, no uh, what's it win win and community of common uh, destiny and things like that but when it comes to their own interests it's always been a very uh, zero sum kind of a situation and that's why uh, either they have in, in terms of diplomatic uh, sort of attitudes the high the higher the the people at the higher levels of their hierarchy uh, the leaders always talk in general terms and in principle but it's at the working level at the at the uh, level of the the key negotiators they push in very very direct aggressive terms and that i think has always happened uh, some elements of the chinese like negotiating style which you you probably heard about they actually they you know when they are not sure about something they keep quiet silence is never acquiescence for them silence if you if you if, you, if they don't speak about it it doesn't mean they've accepted what you're saying and that's the mistake which most countries have made and uh, which most countries have in fact we have done it in the in the 50s we did and we uh, we found that it's uh, we we had missed we had misread their signals almost always it means that they are not yet ready with taking and once they are ready with the point they will push most of the time they push uh, while they have are still formulating their exact position they push the other side to actually reveal their position so that they can adjust and when you ask them to make their make a in, in negotiations when you ask them they say you know you start first secondly uh, you know it is for you you in order to be able to have a good atmosphere you need to do this you need to do that so they try to whittle down the approach of the other side maximally to your side to 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 their advantage and then they say that will create a good atmosphere etc and that pre-negotiating kind of uh let's say uh uh concessions they seek to use as building the climate for good negotiations and then uh, it does not involve any uh, any give or any concession on their part or you they don't even in it doesn't even involve clarifying their own position uh, they therefore most of the time their clarifications are mostly negative in the sense of what what they what what they would not like to happen or they not like to see what they actually would would seek to strive for or would insist upon comes only at the very end and once they they do that normally most of the time they do it when they are already in control so that then it is too late for the other side to be to to be able to you know prize away a thing now the only area where i found that in the south china seas for example where they were not able to do that is in in diaoyu in the senkaku where the japanese had already actually had control and is they, therefore they found that you know and that's the reason why when that happens they get very very voluble and very vociferous and that's where then it becomes wolf warrior it becomes a question of of uh, berating the other side for not uh, for uh, for in a sense being uh, uh, being uh, uh, for you know 
for violating all kinds of uh, uh, you know common commonly accepted principles and things like that and there's what is historically there is etc this is the kind of thing but again in terms of once they you don't find them move away from from principles when they have a very clear position they rarely ever move away from that when they don't have principles they when they don't have very clear idea of what their outer uh, perimeter of their demands are they talk in terms of all sides need to make compromises you need to have mutual accommodation and things like that and then they seek to whittle down the other side seeking accommodation saying that this is the the general approach which they have been having now and one mistake which other countries have been making india has been making the west has been making is to think that uh, that ultimately it's so in fact i think pillsbury makes these points i have you read pillsbury the 100 year marathon no sir not at the moment oh that's a that's a good book which for the I'll for the usu it. it might be a good a good thing for you to read it's called the 100 year marathon it's an old, it's an old book i think it's about 3 3 4 years old he talks about false assumptions on china i don't i can't find it i just written some of them down one is that engagement brings cooperation that's a false assumption which you make with china engagement does not necessarily bring cooperation from china you engage with them they don't cooperate they just engage with you with a view to trying to see what your bottom line is etc it doesn't necessarily bring cooperation then the other false assumption that people make is that china is on the road to democracy this is a misplaced expectation this obviously that has been one of the basic points which uh, which you know from the from the clinton administration when you know mainly clinton and even before clinton the the assumption was that if we give concessions bring them into the wto give them markets etc they they are moving out in the direction of of uh, adopting some of our you know foreign direct investments and things like that oh which means that capitalism will come to china and then democracy will come to china it's not come and in fact what you have is authoritarian resilience this is what they the third is that china is a fragile flower that you know you'll need in there are some people the 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 what the reformers etc you need to be very careful because you know it may it may the whole system may collapse and that you know you may we may this it's there's no such thing they are fairly con, they are they're fairly stable they know what they want to do and they if anything all this ideas of uh, of some people who are uh, who are you know of the liberal lobby who who are, and others who are you know if you don't give concessions to them then you may find that the hardliners will come into place all that is i don't think it's a load of uh, it's basically not very convincing and then the last assumption is that china wants to be and is like us that is you know you know you get to transparent willing to talk moving around that just is not so the chinese uh, in fact even even uh, in their bri you can see you know, in most of africa the, most people see and i think even people like uh, shashi tarur say that the difference between china and india in africa is that most people even though they appreciate what of china is doing they don't want to be like yes. china right sir whereas they think that you know india and china india and africa most people think that you know they are like us and we are like them yes it's there's not that much of a difference 
but the Chinese are not, they don't consider themselves as others and they, there's no way in which you can think that they will be like you. So as long as you can make these kind of, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't fall into these traps, you will be able to take a certain, you know, you'll be able to look at them. I don't necessarily mean that in our responses, we need to be Im imitating them. I don't think India has generally been using strategies of deception in its negotiations. We've generally been, we've generally, uh, we are argumentative, yes. We tend to be argumentative, but our responses are predictable. We stress a lot on credibility. Uh, we do also appear by and large, I wouldn't say in all cases, transparent. Because our, our approaches are by and large transparent. Of course, there is, I mean, India also has its own version of Sam, Dam, Dandabhed and all that. All that is there. And it's increasingly now you do find certain traditional, uh, you know, kind of approaches coming there. But by and large, our, our attitudes in, in, in diplomacy have been to be predictable and credible. And that means that when you say something, you tend to, you tend to, you know, it has to be, it has to be in a sense verifiable and also that you continue to, uh, to stand by what you've said. The Chinese also do talk a lot about having to be credible and by and large, I think they are credible, but they are credible in a very technical sense. Sometimes they don't, they don't say the, you know, they're not necessarily lying. But they're always suggesting the wrong. They, you you don't understand, and they say we've never said that. When you so that kind of that kind of you know mist of uh, of ambiguity, they continue to keep in their discussion, and that has happened in most cases. And if you see it in in the disarmament cases, also you see the way in which they've they've approached discussions. Uh, that is the same thing. They've actually taken normally let other people take the the lead when they are not the main in the main, the mainly in disarmament, they've let the US take the lead most of the time. And they themselves have tried to, uh, you know, try to be on the side of what the whole world wants. The international public opinion is in favor of, of you know, uh, uh, greater, uh, what may be greater uh, restrictions or greater uh, constraints on, on the uh, people who are, you know, nuclear, on on the emerging powers like India and, and Pakistan, who are not recognized in the non-proliferation treaty as nuclear weapon states. Therefore, they say this is in order to prevent the, uh, the world from, the, prevent the non-proliferation treaty from being, uh, being progressively, you know, in a sense, eroded, etc. So there is that kind of approach which they adopt. And progressively, when <clears throat> they find that the U.S. is, Moving in a direction as happened in the case of uh, of the Indian, uh, you know, in the, the agreement with India when uh, when Bush was there, etc. You find that they then seek to, you know, in a, they they try to to in a sense publicly depict the United States as moving away, making you know moving away from its own high principles, and if that. And in the case of India, the, the you know this what they call what is it clear uh, waiver which we got. NSG waiver. Uh, yes. yeah. yeah, that's right. The NSG the waiver. They then say, oh, that must if if this is given to 
one country it must they say it must be given also to pakistan that kind of thing meanwhile they work their way to trying to you know so that they are they they see that the 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 kind of benefits which india may have derived is is somewhat uh not alleviated but uh, neutralized by they are being able to uh provide a balance by giving assistance and providing the same kind of exceptions for pakistan so this has been the kind of approach which they have had deception very often sometimes deceit and uh, from our point of view we uh, our approach has always been to be on the to be ever vigilant not to be not one to take silence as acquiescent and not any more in the earlier years there was a sense that you know india are some of our Uh, approaches in in in, uh, in negotiation we put a lot of emphasis on one to one and building personal ties and chemistry and things like that you know that's that's been a kind of it's almost a bane of our uh, particularly democratic kind of things you know you we want to try and establish an equation with the top leader and hope that that once you establish a equation with the top leader then everything falls in line that i think uh in china it doesn't work because i think it's it establishing on the top of of uh, of chemistry with the top leader works when there is basic agreement in in overall in the strategic direction of the relationship it does not work when there are major problems in the relationship and those major problems are never uh resolved only by top level contacts because most of them more, the top do not really go into detail they all the details have to be worked out by the lower officers and then it goes to them and they are not so you will not find i mean i don't know whether uh you can necessarily find uh, uh solutions only by continuous negotiations but i think the with, as we've noticed in galwan post galwan also unless you go through the details and the nitty gritty of discussions on each of the details i don't think and you know the differences you, you 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 and the chinese get a clear idea that there is no further give there is no way in which you are going to they're going to be able to bully the other side into accepting anything any 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 change in that position it's only then that you can go to the upper stage and get a kind of a change in the and that of course to some to some to to a to a large extent ultimately the decision comes from up but they do not come unless there's been a very detailed discussions on the ground that i think is very important to understand right now i don't know whether i I've, i've got very on a very broad kind of link would you want to yes sir sure sir i mean you did answer with uh, the drawing comparisons between chinese negotiating style and indian you did answer my second question as well wherein i had read in an uh, in a harvard business review by john l graham and n mark lam when they talked about eight elements in chinese negotiating yeah. style and they said that the root cause uh, they compared yeah. the american failures Ooh. to understand uh, the chinese yeah. culture and values like both lao tzu and confucius 
were less concerned about fighting, finding mm. the truth. And they were more concerned about finding a way, the middle path. And the way they said that while Americans yeah. tend to believe the truth as they see it, the Chinese believe that the way is hard yeah. to find. And so they rely on to haggling to settle differences. That's what they try to do. So I thought if yeah, well, that is true. Yes, sir. Right. Sir. In India, we also have an approach where we are convinced of the of the nethi nethi approach we don't really to take we don't really see the truth as an absolute value which is there immutable for all times because there are many versions of the truth there are there's ambiguity with respect to the truth but our pursuit of that truth is also in terms of finding a way but you know well how do i i don't know if i can bring something which is totally unrelated but which gives you an idea uh you know in both china and india believe in the individual giving priority to the collective community right tajet ekam kulasyarthe they say gramarthe kulam tajet yes gramam janapadasyarthe you know that is the standard kind of thing yes. but this is all, all this this far all the things which we say between india and say the confusion of the louser thing is true but there is one element which india has which confucius certainly doesn't have louser may have and that is the last element of this atmarthe prithvim tajet you know tajet egam kulasyarthe gramarthe kulam tajet gramam janapadasyarthe but then atmarthe kulam tajet which me sarvam atmarthe prithvim tajet that is the fourth thing is you may go for the greater collective but when it is a question of your individual soul when it is a question of the absolute truth which you believe in nothing matters in india the whole world can be sacrificed that is that kind of sense of complete the the the, uh, the kind of atomism of the individual soul where nothing else matters i the difference between myself and the world is lost yes. because i i see and if i identify this as an important thing nothing matters and that in many ways the chinese don't have so they look at the way but the way is ultimately a modus vivendi yes to large extent but there is an element of uh, ultimate kind of uh, truth which we be- believe in which i think there is therefore a very strong sense of moral let's say uh, anchoring moral anchoring which i think indian you know even politics has i think that that's where it in, in some ways that that is important for us to recognize and that we will we should not there are certain things which we never give in the in just in order to be able to get a get a kind of a, a modus vivendi with people and that i think is it is based for 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 much of india and traditionally in india it is based on on some of our identification of what is the what is the essence of our national interest but national interest expressed in the broadest and most uh, uh, most let's say uh, most ethical terms right. now this this difference what you are saying is there and that brings us also closer to some of the western in thinking also right sir okay 
So, sir, uh, you served as a Joint Secretary of East Asia in the MEA in 1987 and helped prepare for former PM Rajiv Gandhi's historic visit to China in 1988. We just talked about that as well. Yes. So, after the lull in relationship due to yes. 1962 conflict, similarly in 2018, the informal Wuhan summit also took place post the Doklam yes. standoff, etc. So, how far yes. do you think yes. such visits proved to be effective for the relations despite the border tensions continuing? Do informal summits with China work at all in that sense? As I said, informal summits can work where there is a broad understanding on what the, what the, what the, uh, what the direction of our relations are. When there is, when there is a, a, a broad understanding of the positives. But when there are, for example, you know, I think the, it was clear when, uh, when, um, during the Wuhan, as well as Mamla during Mamla. the uh, just before Wuhan, Mamalapuram was after. Even oh, before, when when she came in, he did evoke what he called the five points to guide the relations. Punch. And what he meant was better conditions. Xi Jinping, yes. better communications, expanding investments, being conscious of cultural ties, and cooperating in the multilateral field. And he mentioned a very important thing accommodating core interests of both sides. Now, when they talked about core interests of both sides, uh, their understanding of core interests and our understanding of core interests, obviously there is a difficulty, there is a difference. Yes. And that, they didn't care, clarify it. And I think we also, to, to some extent, we clarified it. But I think we made the same kind of uh, mistake where we, which, which has only been rectified in a sense by the current uh, foreign minister who has been, uh, uh, who's been ambassador in China too, uh, where he talked about the three mutuals and the eight general principles. I don't know whether you know, he's talked about that. Yes, sir, now, Sadhavna and it's from S. Shakti, Sadhavna, all of those eight. Uh, no, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't say, he talks about mutual interest, mutual respect and mutual... Uh, mutual interest, mutual respect. I don't know. I, I, I've forgotten it. And this is the core interest for us. Part of the core interests was peace and tranquility on the line of actual control. For us, that is a core interest. And for them, that was not a core interest. The core interest was really trade, this thing moving together, all that. And of course, uh, from their point of view, as long as the LAC, there was no major uh, flare up on the LAC, it's fine, but that did not preclude their making progressive kind of, you know, uh, let's say intrusion moving forward uh, in terms of their own 9th uh, November line. And that I think they mistook, may miss, in a sense, they misread uh, India's determination not to allow that to happen. And that resulted both in Doklam as well as in the Galvan. Uh, and that I think. So just talking about high-level discussions, chemistry, as I said, that can help if, this, if problem areas are not there and you want to actually energize movement in certain directions, like in improving uh, <clears throat> cultural ties, in, in, moving, in, in improving trade, in having more investment, all that, when you want to, uh, to push the, at the top level, if there is some direction given, everybody goes in that direction. But you can't resolve 
major problems of disagreement just by chemistry i think the chinese don't agree, don't really believe in that for them that has to be solved by going into the nitty gritty and at the detail level and that we found uh, in these almost after galvan we found that we had to go through 15 levels of you know these high level discussions and still there's no dis- there's no ground there's no uh, resolution of those differences as yet and i think the only way is to actually go through these and continue and not show any exhaustion in terms or or to display patience i think we need to cope the fact is we need to we have to cope with uh, uh, with the the fact is china is at least five times uh, more powerful than we are yes. and there is no way yes. we can our coping strategy actually must take into account this uh, this particular uh, 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 reality and so we have to be able to be able to uh, show to the chinese to make clear that we have options in the military political trade economic and st levels and that i think the you know things like our own relationship what is really today uh, really going to make a difference to china is the relationship we will have with the united states this quite it's quite clear whether they they may you know they may be sometimes derisory about that but that is the only thing that will make a difference with them the right. fact that we have alternatives we are the fact that we are increasing our, tra- our military tra- ties with them that we are having trade relations with with them and the the possibility that we will be able to improve what we call our comprehensive national strength as we go up and that we are prepared to exercise these earlier the, the main thing right even in the in the time of the in fact ever since 1962 i'd say but more precisely in terms of the uh, underground nuclear test all through after their tests after the the peaceful nuclear explosion in 1974 by mrs gandhi uh, the chinese had the the impression that india did not have the political will or the guts or the 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 let's say the 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 muscularity to be able to actually go through with a weapons uh, uh uh test because they felt that public opinion was will not will not eventually allow the india that to happen and second that the western powers the the, the major powers would not allow this and they and india would be so afraid of the sanctions that they would not be able to take this decision and to a large extent i think they were not entirely inaccurate because there was there were very many people in the in the political uh, let's say uh, in the in the political configuration in india who were actually who you know who had a mixture of ideological idealistic as well as political inhibitions which prevented india from going for this which was a natural kind of thing in fact it should have been it should have happened long ago and but when it happened in 1998 they were taken by surprise they though they were they had they had actually you know made all the all the preparations in terms of trying to uh trying to even give the help to pakistan and on the other hand they had actually been constantly projecting to the united states that this is something that india needed to be 
sanctioned india needed to be prevented and once they they did the underground nuclear test it need the message needs to go to india that you know they can, this cannot be tolerated because this will result in a nuclear conflagration in south asia a nuclear race in south asia they didn't want to let it be connected with uh, china it was more as if the problem was really was really in south yes, asia right uh, and that that kind of they made it look as if this is basically against them and when india made a gave a letter sent a letter to the united states president to president clinton in which we clearly identified that china was the was the object or they they were that was what rattled them really and that's where the whole china threat problem became and the second thing which happened in that at that time was that <clears throat> while they they you know they could not china could not actually have a problem could not publicly uh in a sense criticize india for taking the nuclear weapon path because that's exactly what they did the same arguments they gave was the in 1964 that is the same arguments they gave for uh, uh, their nuclear capacity capability you know the internationals this thing that the fact that the the international situation was going getting worse the fact that the nuclear powers were not willing to commit themselves to either uh, getting uh, reducing their arsenals or to any commitment not to use nuclear weapons and this is what india also did this is what india said when we and that is the reason why there was so much of a problem and they kept pushing again the united states to take uh, to take action against india but yeah. they did not quite reckon with india's negotiating uh, let's say strategy at that time that is to <clears throat> work with the united states to try maximally to meet with their concerns and to reassure the united states through the jaswant singh and the strobe talbot talks etc but on the side of china to be to be just you know to not to not to make any substantive commitments with vis-a-vis china and that's where ultimately all that we did was make a statement that you know that british visha made a statement we are not we don't really consider china as a threat which is really for the present there was no we, we had, at that time they said that there was no threat but at no stage did india really resolve from the from the position that china represented the ultimate threat for us and i think it was when the united states was convinced and began to see the logic of the argument that that india had posed regarding the threat from china that the whole approach towards india's nuclear weapon kind of uh, you know adoption of a new, of, of, of new, becoming a nuclear weapon state was actually uh, accepted by the united states and eventually you know, that went the next step in terms of being able in next step with the agreement on uh, one, two, uh, uh, yes the 1 2 3 agreement yes. so that's that's the that's the way at least which uh, uh, i think i would explain it right sir so uh, you did answer many of my questions in the, uh, in this way uh, how has the chinese approach to negotiation with india changed today 
especially as China keeps on giving us mixed signals. Uh, first, uh, Doklam takes place, then they come with Wuhan spirit, then issues over JNK status, Masood Hazar, South Asian nations joining BRI, etc. continue. Then Mamlapuram still takes place. Then in 2020, with the pandemic, uh, China takes us by surprise again, and uh, they uh, indulge in Galvan clashes. So how do you call out this uh, bluff, this pattern? Is there a pattern actually to such Chinese actions always testing waters with India? What India can I think Yes. I think this question of testing waters is something which they don't, they do not just with India, but that's a general pattern of pushing maximally forward in terms of your interest in order to test the waters of how much can be will be acceptable to the other side. This is so. This is also true with regard to the United States in terms of the United States position on China, on Taiwan, the position regarding uh, the, the Japanese, also on with regard to you know. Oh yeah, Senkaku and other things like that. So it is not it's not specific to India, but the process of pushing, finding maximally, continuously pushing forward in terms of where your to find out what the bottom lines on the other side are is something which we can expect will not change. But the fact is that there is today a, a kind of qualitative difference in the relationship which China has with Pakistan uh, as compared to what there was, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I remember when I was ambassador uh, in 1996 to 2096 was the time when President Jiang Zemin visited India. This was the time when it was the first ever visit by a Chinese head of state to India. And immediately after India, he went to Pakistan. And he made the rather strange to, some, to many people, to the Pakistanis, it was rather, rather they, they were not used to hearing this. They made the, he made the suggestion in, when in his speech to the Pakistani Senate that on Jammu and Kashmir, well, if you have difficulties with India, what you should do is, like we did with regard to our boundary question, set aside the boundary question. So you set aside the Kashmir question and develop relations in other fields with, with India. That was the advice which uh, Jiang Zemin was given, which was, which was which was horrified the Pakistanis because that's not something which they would do. Now, that was the situation in 1996 vis-a-vis the Chinese approach to India and Pakistan. And then when Kargil happened in 1999, the prime minister of, Pakistan, of uh, China actually advised the Pakistani prime minister during India visit also that you should, you know, you should, stop the provocations and you should actually work to de-escalate the situation. Now, this is the kind of thing. Today, that situation has changed somewhat because, and the reason for that, I think, is a, a rather, you know, Xi Jinping's BRI and the CPEC was a, you know, it's a flagship of the, of the, of the this thing, the Belt and Road Initiative the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And for them, building that, giving credibility to that kind, to the CPC is a very major thing. Of course, there have been a lot of problems and uh, many people still think that it's not going to succeed. My own fear, I'm not so sure that it will not succeed 
In fact, I have a feeling that they're, they're the Chinese and the Pakistanis, and now particularly the Pakistani army, is highly invested in this now. And now with Afghanistan, there seems to be a, 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 a further interest with the, which the Chinese have in also bringing a, a kind of their BRI-related economic projects in, in Afghanistan too. Now, these are things which I think have resulted, have made for a, for a strategic difference, a major difference in terms of China's attitude towards Pakistan. And therefore, I find that there will be, be our pressures, particularly in terms of uh, the Ladakh area in the Western sector, is going to be a, a continuing major problem. We will face a major difficulty. But I have a feeling, I mean, I, my own sense is that that does, that, uh, you know, our steady uh, you know, unwillingness to, we, we should not be compromising at all on this. And our will, an unwillingness to actually give, China, any satisfaction in terms of the BRI, I think is an important factor which they will have to keep in mind. And I think this, this is the only way in which we can help to bring this. Uh, I'm not sure how, what the future will bring in terms of uh, the China, Pakistan, Afghanistan thing, mainly because there are still certain things in Afghanistan, which I'm not sure will be, will, you know, will easily resolve itself because, and that's, that's a, an objective situation on this, uh, because the, the way in which Pakistan views Afghanistan and China views Afghanistan, there's a basic binary, I think. China views it purely from the nationalistic, developmental, and the, uh, you know, the, the implications for their, you know, building a larger infrastructural kind of, you know, uh, development of the entire region regional growth, etc. Whereas Pakistan has talked about as uh, for uh, traditionally their approach to uh, Afghanistan has been to support the, the larger interests of religion, the jihad, and, and it, they cannot talk in terms of the nationalistic agenda of Afghanistan because the nationalistic agenda of Afghanistan directly conflicts with their position on the Durand line. Right. And this means that Therefore, there will be more difficulties, and therefore, if anything, they want to move away from the from the nationalistic narrative and move towards the rather the larger religious narrative or the or the fundamentalist narrative, which is again anathema to China. So I see that there is still going to be a major difficulty, a major problem of of alignment in terms of the positions of the various countries. And though Pakistan keeps talking about it's wanting to, you know, uh, <clears throat> it's wanting to try and get greater commit from them, greater commitment from the Taliban against terrorism, etc. Mostly in the context of Xinjiang, but I don't know whether the Haqqani faction and others are really willing, are able to do any major change in that. So, so with regard to China's positions with India, I think the Pakistani factor here is going to be very important. Right. And we have to take into account that that aspect. Absolutely mm. right. So uh, coming to the disarmament part of it, uh, K. Natwar Singh calls uh, such Chinese actions as propaganda, psychological warfare. 
And with India's nuclear test in 1998, many experts believe that India came onto the level of parity with China in terms of such psychological warfare, as well as countering China's position as the sole responsible nuclear power in Asia and global nuclear diplomacy till 1998. How far do you think this has been made possible? Especially now that we see that Beijing is on the tip of an arms race in 2021, it was uh, it was reported by the Washington Post that they are now constructing hundreds of new silos to host their long range nuclear armed missiles in Gansu and Inner Mongolia. So how do you look at India's deterrence position? Is it strong or weak at the moment? I think we have largely taken the position that ours, ours is a minimal deterrence. We have not really, we've not really been in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, having counter force or counter value kind of, uh, you know, pretensions. Because uh, our idea is to prevent and it's more defensive. So in that sense, I think we will continue to have that. While China has, as I said. Pro- for a long time been trying to pretend that the Indian nuclear, uh, the, the problematic of India, uh, Indian nuclear capability is really a problem that can cause uh, international tension due to the subcontinental factor. I think they do real, they cannot, they can no longer kind of take that as a public, uh, anything more than a than, than just an uh, one argument, because I think they realize that India's major concern is not really Pakistan. And there is, of course, we, we can, you know, the, there is a mutual cancelling out in terms of nuclear capabilities on the two sides. Right. As between Pakistan and India. But the fact is that we need a minimum capability, minimum deterrence vis-a-vis China. And I think that has been, that psychological barrier has actually been breached now. So China can no longer uh, can no longer have that kind of psychological advantage over India, and I think that is clear. Now, that being said, India's uh, India's building of the triad is very important, and I think the various pro- measures that we have taken, particularly in the, in terms of, of course, uh, our missiles, our medium range and long range missiles, is one thing. But more the sea-launched missiles, the long-range sea capability, I mean, uh, 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 launching capability, underwater launching capability, that has also now been established by our by the Barak and things like that, which we have got uh, largely from uh, Israel and, and others, and that which has made a major difference. And I think that also uh, has breached the kind of... Uh, the kind of mystique that China may have had. Now, true, the Chinese military capability, its military spending is far in advance of India. And today they're going into hypersonic weapons and things like that. But India also is not very far behind in terms of some of our capabilities. And that is partly also the reason why the India-US relationship is something which gives, you know, gives a fair amount of food for thought for the Chinese nuclear strategists also. And I think that's an important thing. So I, what, what uh, Natwar Singh says is, I think, uh, quite, quite, uh, uh, quite uh, logical in that context. Right, sir. So I'll uh, quickly wrap up the last uh, three questions. And it, it's going to be a little long paragraph, but I'll wrap up them so that you can give a fi- your final uh, inputs on that. Okay. 
uh, whether tactical or strategic, like you rightly mentioned that long range and low yield nuclear weapons in the Indo-Pacific region are becoming more prominent nowadays. And especially in the context of uh, AUKUS, Australia, UK and US. Uh, is own, India's yeah. own nuclear-propelled uh, submarine program. So how do you see the nature yeah. of warfare changing with such sophisticated technology and weaponry rising? Uh, we can clearly look at Ukraine defending itself against Russia with its modern mobile defense systems quite well. So uh, in historical times also, the capabilities, balance of capabilities has not been much of a determinant of the outcome. Like you clearly said that India is not far behind and we don't really need uh, to balance uh, with China in terms of capabilities. However, it's a double-edged sword, sir. The rise in capabilities actually gives us a stronger position on the negotiations table, if not in, on, in the de- deterrence position. So which direction do you think should Indian strategy proceed, both foreign and military? And if you can add a little Indo-Pacific context with the sophisticated technology changing, that's also. This is a big, this is a big mouthful. But nevertheless, let me say that one thing I, I personally believe that India should, we should not be thinking in terms of matching capabilities of any other side in terms of quantity, quantitative matching it's out of the question because I think it's that's that's actually quite an exercise in uh, in uh, uh, it's an impossible exercise. We can't just match it; we just carry on. Therefore, arms race as such is not something which which will suggest itself to any Indian pl- strategic planner. On the other hand, qualitative uh, matching is important because I think that can actually make the difference in terms of credibility of our minimum deterrent also. If, for example, their capacity to you know, strike at us in a manner that completely you know, prevents us from being able to even defend our own, that's going to be difficult. So there are increasingly various new uh, capabilities which uh, the Chinese have talked about, including their, uh, you know, the sort of uh, defense, the you know, sort of attempts at, you know, even even using anti-sat capabilities. Uh, I think we need to take some of these these uh, critical developments in terms of qualitative upgradation of China's both nuclear as well as strategic capabilities uh, in terms of carriage. We should take that into account, and that. To a large extent, I think, is being subserved by the dialogue we have with the United States. And I think that is important that we continue that with the, and, and with other major partners, whereby we will be able to uh, keep both a watch on these developments and to be able to match to them extent, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of capabilities. And I think that is important, both in terms of uh, our being able to uh, the, the, the credibility of our deterrence then becomes uh, established. And then also they are being able to neg- negotiate. We'll need also the, the, the fact that we are now increasingly uh, cooperating with people in the Quad and the AUKUS also, I think is important. I think this, is, this gives us a, a certain amount of strength, particularly in the context of the no limits understanding between Russia and China. Now, Russia has given us a large amount of, of military equipment, but these military equip- this military equipment is not really, I don't, well, I suppose our radar will help even vis-a-vis China, but 
the most of this equipment is really vis-a-vis Pakistan, I think. And 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 in the in the in in terms of nuclear cooperation, it has been really in civilian nuclear cooperation that are uh, that uh, that the main. And in any case, I think the nature of our technological cooperation with the United States must take into account these threats. I think in the future we will have to take into account that kind of threat, which the, 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 the challenge which we face from China. And that expresses itself, of course, if you say that in any future challenge we have on our land frontiers in the north, obviously this is, we are not going to expect help from, from the outside. We will have to determine, we'll have to do this mainly on our own. And that essentially rests on our being able to build infrastructure being able to build our ability to, to, to minimize the time we, we have to bring our forces up to the, to the border. That's the main challenge we have. And that after that, to be able to have a certain balance in terms of both in, uh, uh, in terms of armaments, that's not really in the nuclear realm. But in the nuclear realm, I think increasingly we should think in terms of what we have in our to, you know, in terms of uh, the broader uh, capabilities, the the broader the the quality of our uh, uh, our uh, armaments, our our uh, whatever uh, what is it uh, the uh, 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 the missiles etc. As well as within in terms of the naval uh, in in terms of our naval capabilities, whether it's uh, nuclear powered submarines or in terms of the balance of all our naval capacities to to be able to cope with any threat uh, from the sea. I think that is that's an important uh, element. Thank you very much Thank for you. all your time and for your very kind cooperation. Thank you for tuning in. Read this conversation on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website ipcircle.org. And follow us on Twitter at IP underscore circle. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the Council for Strategic and Defense Research or the Center for Policy Research.